The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles now if you'd open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. And we are going to resume our study of the crucifixion this morning. Now, although the crucifixion, the time of it wasn't very long, it took less than a day for Jesus to be crucified and to die, yet the significance of what happened on the cross has long-lasting effects. In effect, we can say, or really we can say, that the death of Christ, the planning for the death of Christ, goes all the way back to the creation of the world. The history of redemption goes back to creation in the Garden of Eden with Adam. Uh, The story is that the serpent beguiled Eve, and she ate of the forbidden fruit. And God placed the blame for that on Adam, And then he turned to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 and he said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And that sentence that we find there very early in the scriptures in Genesis 3 is the beginning of the redemption story and what we're going to discuss today. The bruising of Christ is, or of the serpent's seed, uh, or the uh, seed of the woman, rather, is the awful events that are told in the four gospel accounts and also, of course, in the Old Testament about Christ. And in another way, uh, all of those sufferings have to do with us, with those of us who are saved and are also uh, the seed of salvation. And these things happen to us because of our association with Christ. Paul wrote, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And he also wrote, It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. And so it's helpful for us to look at the sufferings of the cross as being truly vicarious. That means that Christ suffered for us that his sufferings are for those that believe on him, and they actually do have an effectual result, and that is the salvation of their souls. Now, today we're going to look at uh, some events that happened on this day that had to do with the physical, the mental, and the spiritual sufferings of Christ. And then next week we're going to conclude this section with a salvation story that happened right while Jesus was hanging there on the cross, right at the moment of all of his suffering. Now, if you look in Matthew chapter 27, let's just stand for a moment as we read God's Word. We're going to start at verse number 33, and uh, we'll end the reading this morning at verse number 36. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. Father, we pray that you would help us as we look into your word today. What a terrible scene that we see before us. But we see that Christ did this for us, for our redemption, 
And we thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the last message, we looked at the terrible beating that took place in the praetorium, that is, uh, Pilate's Hall, while Pilate's soldiers took a whip that was designed to inflict suffering upon Christ, a whip that was intended to just beat his back to shreds. And by the time that that beating was over, Jesus was left a, a bloody mess with bones exposed and possibly some of the internal organs. And it was in that condition, being beaten nearly to death, that he tried unsuccessfully to pick up his cross and take it to the place of the execution. But Jesus was so weakened by the beating and so near to death that he couldn't carry the load. And at that point, there was a man by the name of Simon who was a Cyrenian that was pulled out of the crowd and they demanded or commanded him to take up the cross and to carry it the rest of the way. And our story here resumes at verse number 33 when Jesus and the soldiers and the crowd that was following, they arrive at this place where Jesus would be nailed to the cross and where he would be lifted up in humiliation. And this is the place where he would take that very last breath of his life and where atonement for our sins would be accomplished. Now I want us to notice first the place where they took Jesus, the place of execution, and what happened just before the soldiers began to drive the nails into his hands and his feet. So first, we'll look at Golgotha and Gaul. In Matthew 27, it says, verse 33, And when they were coming to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. So the scripture says that they came to a place that's called Golgotha. Verse number 33 gives us the name of the place and also the translation of that word. It's an Aramaic word that means skull. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 33, it says that they came to a place that was called Calvary. And that is actually the Latin translation of the Greek word cranion, which also means skull. And that's the term from which we get our English word cranium. And so both of these mean skull, whether you're talking about Golgotha or Calvary, which may be a little bit more familiar to us. Both of those scriptures are, or names are used interchangeably in the scripture, and they mean skull. So whether we say in, in Aramaic, Golgotha, or we say in Latin, Calvary, or we say in Greek, Cranion, or whether we say in the English, skull, it's all referring to the same place. So it was the place of the skull, the scripture says, but what we don't really know is exactly where that place of the skull was. And that's really a subject of debate. Throughout church history, there's been a lot of differences of opinion about where it occurred. If you travel to Jerusalem today, uh, there are various claims that are made for the site. During the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church built churches and convents and monasteries over different sites that they claimed uh, were the events that happened uh, where the events of the Bible happened. And you'll find these churches all over. For instance, in Bethlehem, you find a, a church of the Nativity where you go into the basement of that church and there they claim is the place that Christ was born. And so they show you a little grotto there and they have their shrine that's set up. And so they have this huge church that's built over the place where they say that Jesus was born. 
Uh, on the Sea of Galilee, you go to a place there and you'll find a church that's built and a convent that's built on the site that they say is the place where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And then you can go to other places. Uh, you can go to, for instance, to Mount Tabor, a very highly disputed spot for the ascension of Christ. And there is a monastery that's built on the top of Mount Tabor. And that's where they say that Christ ascended into heaven. And so people will travel to these different places. Uh, tourists will go and they will feel so blessed that they have been in all of these places where Jesus was born or where Jesus was uh, did certain things, where he did miracles, where... Uh, he was crucified, where he was put into the tomb, where he ascended. And really, for most of these, we don't actually have any proof that that's where these things happen. But people feel really good about that, that they've been in the places where Jesus was. But there is one thing that we know for sure about the place called Golgotha. It was located outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. Now again, if you go to Jerusalem today, within, within where the old city walls would have been, there is a church there where they claim that Jesus was crucified inside of the city walls. But if there's one thing that we know about Scripture and our study of Scripture and about prophecy, everything that the Bible says is exactly accurate. We know that the Bible is accurate. We've seen prophecies fulfilled throughout the Scriptures. And so we know that that church that's on the inside of those boundaries can't be the place where Jesus was crucified. Now, the Old Testament described uh, hundreds of years before the means of crucifixion was ever used uh, that what it was about. And we look in the Old Testament prophecies and we see in the Psalms, which we'll look at a little bit later, and we know this from reading the Bible, that Jesus was crucified outside of the city walls. And that's because the Bible says that Jesus would suffer outside of the gate. You see, when Israel made their sacrifices, they never killed the sacrifice inside the camp of Israel, but they took the sacrifice outside the camp, and that's where they killed it. And so the Old Testament shows us that Jesus could never have been crucified inside of the city. And then there is a Bible author who lived at the time of the crucifixion, and he tells us this in Hebrews 13, verse 12, Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. And so we know this for sure, that Calvary was outside of the city walls. Now, usually crucifixions were at very visible spots, usually at a crossroads, where there were people that were traveling from different directions. And uh, Rome wanted people to see these crucifixions because they wanted you to know what will happen to you if you try to do something against them. Uh, the crucifixions are, of course, a deterrent for crimes against Rome. But why the place is called, this place is called a place of the skull, we don't really know. Some people say that it's because there were many crucifixions there, and there were skulls that were scattered all over the ground because of crucifixions. But we don't think that can be right because that was a desecration to the Jews. They would have never allowed that. that to leave bones unburied was desecration to them. So it's highly unlikely that there were any skulls that were lying about. But it's a more likely scenario that there was a hill that had the appearance of a skull. And there is a place that's like that just outside of the walls of Jerusalem where it is popularly theorized that it was the site of the crucifixion. Now, I have a picture for you here. And if you look at that closely, you, you can see that 
doesn't that look like a, a head and a skull? You see nose and eye sockets. That particular place is called Gordon's Calvary. And this is the place where many, many people believe is the place where Jesus was crucified. It is a very visible place. There was, in ancient times, a road that went by it. It's visible from within the city. On the Temple Mount, you can see this. And from other high spots in the city, you can see this particular place. But in any case, the, the place of the skull, it is a, is a fitting thing because the skull speaks of death. And the Romans might very well have chosen this place to have their crucifixions as a reminder that it's certain death for anyone that opposes them. So they took him to Golgotha. It's the place of the skull. And in verse number 34, it says they gave him vinegar to drink that was mingled with gall. Oh, you can imagine how thirsty that Jesus must have been. Later on, he, he would say, I thirst. But at this point, his thirst is not the reason for the vinegar, vinegar that was mixed with gall. Now, whenever we think of vinegar to drink, we would say, oh, how awful that that is. I mean, th this must have been another of their acts of cruelty that they would give him vinegar to drink. But the Romans had a purpose for it. The vinegar was uh, actually something that they did drink. It was a sour wine that the soldiers drank, and it was bitter. But I, I, I suppose that for people who like to drink alcohol, the, the taste of it really doesn't matter all that much. They're after something else. You know, I've always thought this, that the first reaction of your body to a substance may be an indication of whether it's good for you or not. You take your first puff off of a cigarette, what do you do? You choke, don't you? You know, I remember when I was young, I only took one puff of a cigarette my entire life. And this was when I was really young, and my dad was pastoring in a country church, and all the farmers grew tobacco there, and lots of people smoked. My dad always preached against it, but there were people in the church that smoked. And so uh, one of my friend's brothers, I'm the preacher's kid, so he was going to tempt me. And so he, he gave me a cigarette, and I was willing to be tempted. And so I took a puff off that cigarette, and I thought I was going to choke to death. I turned green in every color, I'm sure. And I knew that's not good for you. So you drink alcohol, the first thing that your body does, it wants to reject that. You smoke a cigarette, the first thing your body wants to do is to reject it. And that's a pretty good indication that God has given you protection for your body so you know when something is harmful. But in any case, they gave him this sour wine, and it was mixed with gall, and there was actually a purpose for it. In Mark chapter 15, verse 23, there it says that the wine was, or the vinegar was mixed with myrrh. And that's probably because the Aramaic term for myrrh very closely resembles the Hebrew word for gall. So we would ask then, why did they give him vinegar that's mixed with myrrh? Well, it's not actually an act of cruelty. Uh, if, if you could find anything in the death of the cross that's an act of compassion, this might have been it. And that's because Jewish women would, would often mix these kinds of drinks for a condemned criminal, and they would give this to them because uh, the myrrh that's in the drink acts as a sedative, and it was helpful just to ease some of the pain. Well, you know that the Romans there, they're not interested in any acts of compassion. They're not trying to help prisoners out. They want to inflict as much pain as possible. But they allowed the myrrh to be given because that served their purposes. 
See, if you wanted to nail someone to a cross, you can just imagine how much resistance there would be. I mean, you, you, you don't want to be nailed to a cross. It would be hard to get that criminal to stay still while you nailed his hands and his feet. And so the pain of crucifixion, having those nails draw, uh, draw, drove in, that was excruciating. And did you know this, that the word excruciating also speaks of the cross? Whenever you use that word, excruciating, the middle of the word is, comes from the word crux, which means cross. And so whenever you say, oh, my pain is excruciating, then you're relating it to the pain and suffering of dying on a cross. Well, a, a man would just writhe and he would squirm and he would use every bit of his last ounces of strength to resist all that he could. You see, the criminal was just like Jesus. He had his back shredded. It was hard to, to get him to put his back down against that rough-hewn cross with all the splinters that were sticking out. Now, you see our cross that we have over in the baptistry there. If you go over and you put your hands on that and run your hand down it, that's a nice, smooth, plain surface. It's a painted surface and it's slick. But the cross that Jesus died on wasn't like that. If you've ever seen rough-sawn timber, timber, and, and taken your hand and rubbed it across it, you have an idea of the kind of splinters that you would get in your hand if you did that. And so this is what the cross was like. And they would take that criminal with his back already beaten and bloody and laid open and all these open wounds, and they'd press his back down or lay him down on the cross, and those splinters of the cross would go back, go, go into his open back. And then while he's hanging on the cross, what a prisoner would want to do is kind of raise himself up some to give relief to his hands that the nails are driven in there to take a little pressure off his feet. And then he would have to relax it and go down on his feet to leave some pressure that was on his hands. And each time that he did that, his back is going up and down on those rough splinters that are on the cross. Now when you wanted to put a man on the cross, it would be a good idea to sedate him just a little. Tried to get him to calm down a little bit, and that would make it much easier for the soldiers to drive in those nails. I mean, perish the thought that soldiers would ever have to endure any problems putting a man on the cross. But they would do that. And the sedative then actually became a convenience for the Romans just for a little bit to calm the prisoner down. Well, we see here that Jesus tasted that vinegar, and he realized what was in it, but he refused to drink. And that's just a remarkable thing. Why didn't he want to alleviate just a little bit of the suffering? Well, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that Jesus was determined to take all of the suffering. He didn't want to have his pain dulled. And that's because it would take all the pain that he could suffer to satisfy God for sin. Uh, we, we must understand how bad that sin is to God. Sin is a personal offense because sin is the rejection of God's authority. Sin belies the holiness of God. And when Adam took that one bite of the fruit, that shattered the glass of holiness. He'd rebelled against the holy God and now his eyes were opened to sin. And with that one sin, all of the human race and all of creation was plunged into the consequences of it. And that one sin is what set Genesis 3.15 in motion. One sin made it necessary for the bruising of the Savior at Calvary. Well, that one sin caused hell. One transgression would take all the fury of God against Christ to overcome And Jesus knew that. 
And he wouldn't have his pain set aside. He took that in order to free us from the curse of sin. And you need to remember that, and I need to remember that. Every time that we want to do something that we know that is against God, when you want to sin, when you know something is against God, then you know that Jesus was taking pain and suffering for that sin that you want to commit. And you don't have to kill somebody to inflict pain on Christ. Adam never killed anybody. But he sinned against God, and all sin is defiance against him, and sin causes the punishment of hell. And we need to realize that when we think that God won't send people to hell unless they've committed the big ones, but he will. Because all sin is a hell offense. And that shows us that there is none of us that could ever do anything to get to heaven on our own. I mean, unless you have a valid claim for a perfect life, then you can forget about escaping hell. And the only method that you ever can is by what Jesus did right here. He refused a sedative to pay for that little sin of looking at the thing that you shouldn't look at. He refused it for that little sin of a curse word that you say underneath your breath. That little sin of thinking a bad thought. All of those things are hell offenses. And Jesus was determined to take the pain of the punishment for every one of them. And then I think there's a second reason why he refused the myrrh. He didn't want his senses dulled. Soon he was going to speak from the cross. And he didn't want to have the, his senses dulled so that he didn't know what he was saying. And, and he didn't want to, to have those important words to be missed. And there are many claims that Christ was reluctant to go to the cross. And what does a drug man look like? He looks like a man who resisted. He looks like a man who doesn't want to be there. He had to be forced to take the nails. But Jesus refused the myrrh, and still he didn't kick and scream. The soldiers didn't need any sedation to calm him down. No, he laid there calmly as his back was put up against the cross. His arms were stretched out, and the nails were driven into his hands and feet. And he did it voluntarily. He said that he came into the world for that purpose cross was not a surprise to him. This is the predetermined end. Let me pause for just a moment to, to comment about suffering. Here, here we see Christ's willingness to die for redemption's cause, and we see that there, there is no suffering that was too great for him to bear. But we think about those for whom Christ died, and we look at ourselves, and we, 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 we examine American Christianity today. We're not faced with death. At least not yet are we faced with death. But how many are there that refuse Christian service because they think it's going to involve a little bit of suffering? What about that time and effort that we want to reserve for ourselves and we won't give that to Christ because it might cause us a little pain or suffering or cause us not to do what we want to do. Are you willing to take that little bit of energy to use for Christ? Now, our sufferings aren't really all of that great in comparison to what Christ went through, and yet we show no gratefulness for the high price that he paid for our salvation. Of the most suffering that Christ could endure, he was willing to take in order to purchase our redemption. He gave everything when we're really not willing to give practically anything. But Jesus wouldn't drink. 
And be thankful for that, that he would not drink, because any dulling of that pain leaves sin unatoned. Now we move on to verse number 35, and the beginning of this verse just starts out very simply, and they crucified him. There's no explanation of how he felt. There's no description of his pain. It doesn't say that he winced or he grit his teeth. But he was every bit as much human as you and me, and so he felt just like we would feel. And so I'm sure that he did grimace and he bit down hard. Now Matthew's audience had seen thousands of crucifixions, and so there was no need for Matthew to give us the details. Uh, We'll discuss some of that. But the cross was such a common sight that people didn't need to be told about it. So we'll just stick to the narrative for now. It just simply says here, they crucified him. And I will add one quote. Cicero, the Roman philosopher, said, Crucifixion was the cruelest and most loathsome punishment. Well, they nailed him to the cross, and there is no glamorization of the details as we would do if we wrote this. There's no romanticism about the sufferings of the cross. Now, I think it is all right if preachers take some time to do that because we want you to understand what they knew. And we need to do it because our crosses are sanitized. Our crosses decorate buildings. They decorate baptistries. They're often jewelry that's studded with diamonds. Well, the Roman cross was a blood-stained instrument of torture. They would never think of glamorizing the cross. Well, they crucified him, and then they further humiliate him. Verse number 35, And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. Now, secondly, we look at the symbolism of shame. It says they parted his garments. Well, that was a fulfillment of Scripture, really in more ways than one. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 22 for just a moment. This is a psalm that was written uh, 1,000 years before Jesus' death. And it's kind of strange that we have more explanation of crucifixion in this chapter than we do in the contemporary account that's written in Matthew's Gospel. And really what you should do is take some time to read this entire psalm because it's fascinating. But we're going to look at just this one part, starting at verse 15 where there are some descriptions that are missing from Matthew. Psalm 22, starting in verse 15, and this is echoing the words as if Christ is speaking, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Now the soldiers, it tells us in Matthew, parted his garments. Now what was the right of the soldiers to take away the clothes of the prisoner? He wasn't going to need shirts and shoes any longer. And so they would take those things for themselves and... And much like us, at that time, they wore outer garments and inner garments. And the outer garments, that's not so hard to divide. The robe and the sash and so on, those things can be divided up. But that inner garment that a person wore was made of all one piece. And so they couldn't divide that without ruining it. 
And so here it says that they gambled for it. And I might make mention of this, that gambling is just as disgusting in the eyes of God today as it was then. And I really do think that Christians ought to think about what these soldiers did to Jesus. They gambled for his clothing. And whenever, I don't know if any of you are, but if you're ever tempted to make a trip to the casino and put down a few dollars there or to have a poker night with the boys, you just ought to think about what happened to Christ. One of the sins of the cross was the gambling that took place there. Now, the gambling, that should be mentioned, but that's really not the most important part of this statement. More importantly is this, that they took his clothes from him. Now, the popular pictures of crucifixion and the crucifix of Roman Catholicism is not an accurate depiction of Christ's humiliation on the cross. And that's because Jesus was crucified naked. Now, nakedness doesn't mean very much to people today. I mean, we're inundated with nakedness. In San Francisco, there are days to celebrate nakedness. A person can even be interviewed on television naked. But I can assure you that Jesus' nakedness was not a celebration. There, there was no humiliation that was greater than for a person to be exposed to look at. And don't think that these people were any less crude than people are today about speaking or mentioning about the body parts. Oh, nakedness was an awful thing. And when Jesus had his arms stretched out there, he couldn't take his arms down to cover himself. And the nakedness of the cross was particularly disgusting because at, at, by this time it was impossible to control body functions. Now, I know that we think of things like this, but we don't often ask about them. Where did they take a bathroom break from the night before until now? And when a man was crucified the pain would finally cause him to let go of all restraint. The shame of his privacy was gone, and the body's hanging there on the cross, and it's soiled with urine and with excrement. Can you imagine the awfulness of that? We can't even hardly talk about that, but that's what happened to Jesus. And I want to comment a little bit this morning about nakedness. There's nothing that happened on the cross that doesn't have spiritual implications. So I want us to go back to the Garden of Eden for just a moment where I started the message. If you turn to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree, what was the very first thing that they discovered? Well, they realized that they were naked. Before they sinned, their nakedness really didn't matter. There weren't any evil thoughts there was no shame because there was no sin. But as soon as the effects of eating of that tree and the knowledge of good and evil, as soon as that kicked in, they knew that they were naked. Now, if you look at Genesis chapter 3, let's look a little bit at this chapter in the discovery of nakedness. Verse number 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam, and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, 
And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now do you see that? Adam hid himself from God because he was naked. Why? Well, what Adam did when he took of that forbidden fruit, he forfeited the glory of God that was his covering. Now the shame meant, the, the, the shame that he has meant that it had been discovered that he had eaten of the tree. Oh, he was ashamed that he disobeyed God, but he was ashamed because he was naked. And he was so ashamed that he devised a way to cover his nakedness, and that was by sewing fig leaves together. Well, the fig leaves, that, that's a symbol of how we try to cover the shame of our sins by our foolish efforts. Uh, we can't hide the fact that we're sinners with fig leaves. Fig leaves are, are never going to make up for our acts of transgression. Once the act has been done, the guilt can't be reversed. So what Adam couldn't do, he couldn't restore God's glory in him. And that's really what redemption is. It's the restoration of God's glory in man. And so we go down to verse number 21, and there it says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Adam could not clothe himself. God made clothes for him. And there is where you see what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was naked so that he could clothe us. Oh, the soldiers took Jesus' clothes, and that's symbolic that we have to be clothed by what Christ does. His are the clothes of righteousness. And righteousness is what it takes in order for you to be clothed in God's eyes. And so when Jesus was naked on the cross, it showed that he was willing to bear the very worst of our shame. Uh, in the garden, Adam's nakedness, that was the one thing that was on his mind. What mattered the most to Adam in that moment was getting his clothes on. Now we can theorize about all the individual sins that took place and the, and the implications of all of that. We can think about Eve as she distorted the words of God as she spoke to the serpent. And in the whole thing, there's this distrust of God and His Word. And we can sermonize about all of those kinds of things, but there's one glaring fact that remains in the story. Nakedness was Adam's greatest shame. And that is so peculiar when we think about our own lack of modesty today. The shame of our society can be wrapped up in this one thing, the desire to be naked. Now, is it any coincidence that the deeper that we go into sin and the more perverted that society becomes, the more that clothes become optional? We keep taking more and more off. Now, conservative parts of the country, you could still get arrested for taking your clothes off. In fact, did you know this, that you could get arrested a few years ago for wearing what some people wear to church? Or at least your church needed to be located in the area of town where there was a burlesque show. But as you get closer and closer to the left coast, there's no more God and there are no more clothes. Well, it seems to me that the first thing that a Christian would do, when a Christian or a person gets saved, the first thing that he'd want to do is to put on more clothes. But our Christianity has been compromised. Church... Even going to the church service can become an adventure in salaciousness. And folks, that's when we need to stare at the cross and realize that Jesus hung there naked, taking the shame that some display in his house. 
Now, what does that say to us? God killed animals to clothe Adam and Eve. He didn't want nakedness physically or spiritually. And so God designed the nakedness of the cross as a means of covering your nakedness. He, he wants the shame of that gone. And he did that in a spiritual way, but no less that he do it in a physical way because he did both of those for Adam and Eve, didn't he? He took away their spiritual shame, but he also took away the physical shame. He clothed them. And that's something to think about when you buy your clothing. Does it cover your nakedness? Or does it leave little to the imagination? And then remember this too, that men and women, the men and women that stood there that day, fought the same kinds of thoughts about Jesus that people think today. Jesus died to end the shame of nakedness and those very kinds of thoughts. Now one last thought on this, and I'll let you go for today. The soldiers took Jesus' clothes. And the symbolism of that is that he was willing to have his shame exposed. He went through that for you. He was willing to have his own shame exposed so that you could have the clothes of his righteousness. Now let me take you to the book of Isaiah. Let's turn there, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 61. This is a messianic chapter. Jesus quoted from this chapter early in his ministry in Luke chapter 4 when he was in the synagogue in Nazareth. He quoted verses 1 and 2, but we're going to look at verse number 10. And I want you to think about the clothes of Christ. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Now, do you see a beautiful picture there? The shame of the nakedness of the cross happened so that you could put on the robes of righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, these are the robes of salvation that adorn the redeemed of God. And this robe that, that God gives us is a robe that covers from head to foot. There, there is no sin that's not covered. And it's really, truly a marvelous picture because the death of Christ did this. It covered all of our sins. The robe of the righteousness of Christ leaves nothing that's exposed to God's eyes. God sees no sin. And so instead, he sees the person that has been redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. He sees that person covered with Christ. And he can see that what Christ did on the cross has been given to you. Now the question here is, have you actually put on those clothes? Do you actually wear the righteousness of Christ? And I won't say that this is always true, but the Bible certainly gives us plenty of indications that we can judge a person's salvation by their actions. Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. And he meant that by a person's actions, you can tell whether they believe or not. And so you might want to think about that. What things do you do that expose your spiritual nakedness. Now there's one other scripture and I'll close. Let's go to the back of the Bible to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19 just before the book of Concordance so it's not easy, to, not hard to find rather. So Revelation 19 and remember this, Isaiah 61 verse 10 ended with this. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. Now we look and see what Revelation 19 says, verses 7 and 8. 
It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Oh, here we have a scene in heaven that's just before the end of the world. And those that are in heaven, it says, are clothed in righteousness. Now, we need to look at that and understand what does he mean that they're clothed in righteousness. Well, first he would be talking about the righteousness that's given by our faith in Christ. There he's talking about justification. We're justified in God and we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ and that covers us. But then he's also speaking of something else here. He's also speaking of righteous works. That is, the works that you as a Christian do. Now, there are things that Christ does. That is first. That's primary. And then second is what you do. And that tells us that a person that has been clothed with righteousness will begin to demonstrate that he wears Christ clothing. He will demonstrate in his life that he wears Christ clothing. Now, you can think about that for a minute and relate that to the physical sense. Also, to be without clothing says a whole lot, doesn't it? says a whole lot about whether a person is really a Christian. And that's what I want you to think about today. Think about the shame of Christ and what he did. He wouldn't have his pain and suffering abated. He was willing to do everything that he did as a voluntary sacrifice. And they, he let them take his clothes away in order that he could clothe you. And so what is there in your life that shows that you've been clothed by Christ? Did your life show that you've really trusted him to save you from all of your sins? Does it show that you are completely surrendered to him? Think about that. Check your clothing, both spiritually and physically, and see if you have a reason to rest in that hope of heaven. Now, as I said a moment ago, there's nothing that happened in the cross, no part of this story that does not have some kind of a spiritual implication for us. And here we see the cross and the nakedness of Jesus takes us right back to that very first sin when the bruising that was going to happen according to Genesis 3.15. The Bible comes full circle, doesn't it? It covers all of these areas. And what we need to see, what does God want from us? What does God expect us to do? How does he expect us to live? Do we really show that we belong to him? And it can show up in your clothing as well as in many other areas of your life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and our hearts are humbled by the message of the cross. There, there are so many important facets of this, so many things for us to see. You have so many things to teach here. And we just ask, Lord, that we would just take this and divide it up and pick it apart and find the places of meaning that you have for us and see how all the scriptures just fall into place and work together to reveal the completeness of the salvation that we have in Christ. It's very important how we appear, how we look to the rest of the world, what kind of testimony that we present. Are we truly the people of God? Lord, Lord, help us to be concerned about that every single day our lives and everything that we do, that we bear a tremendously good testimony of Jesus Christ. Thank you again for the sacrifice that he made, the willingness to suffer all the pain, to take all of the 
beatings, all the afflictions that was placed upon him so he could satisfy you, Father, for our sins. Speak to someone's heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I think about the refusal of Christ to drink that vinegar that's mingled with the gall, the sedative, the thing that comes to my mind is that he would not compromise. He was going to take fully the worst. There would be no compromise in the death of the cross. He fully expected everything that he got, didn't try to lighten the load at all. And I think it's the way that we need to look at our Christianity today because Christ would not compromise and yet our Christianity is filled with compromises. We're willing to take a lot of things, a lot of, do a lot of things that, that Christ would never have said that's okay to do. I think he can look at people in church and he knows what you do in your everyday life. He knows the way you dress. He knows where you go. He knows the way that you talk. He knows the kind of friends that you have, the kind of activities that you like. And I'm sure that if you sat down and you started to write those things out and say, would Jesus compromise in doing this? That you'd have a lot of things on the right side of that paper that said, no, 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 no. Think about the compromises that you've made. And then think about the cross. There was no compromise in the death for sin. And that's why it's so horrible for him. We see more of it when we get a little bit later on. And that is where his own father, because of the awfulness of sin, turned his back on him. What terrible suffering that Jesus went through. And now think about the compromises that you make. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.